How are you all doing today? Good. I hope you had a good week. I certainly did. Challenges? Yes, it's all part of it. Blessings? Absolutely abundant blessings from the Lord. How many are thankful for God's blessings? Let me just, um, let me just give you a little tiny picture. Um, one of the great blessings happened on Friday. I'm going to go backwards. Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Friday. Becky and I ate free all day Friday. Is that a great thing or what? Um, and it's because we just, uh, it's just circumstantial. I went to my favorite sandwich shop and they just said, Mr. Smith, it's free today, probably because I'm there every day and you get a free one every so often. But, um, and then uh, that evening I went to get Becky something and I had to wait a little while for them to prepare it, and which was fine. I really didn't make much of it. And when they handed it to me, they said, uh, since you had to wait, this is free. So I said, hallelujah, Becky, we ate free all day on Friday. So I called that a blessing. I don't know about you, but I did. Then um, Thursday, uh, the day before, was, it was my turn to teach all of the Bible classes here at Bethesda Christian School. And certainly once you stand and lecture for six classes, an hour each, you have a renewed appreciation for all the teachers in the room. And um, amen. So uh, I was, it's a whooping, let me tell you, by the time you do that. But we certainly have some, some great students, and I, I enjoyed that. Then Wednesday, the day before that, there was a young man who had been referred to me, not a member of our church, had not been a student of our school. Um, he is uh, studying a music performance degree in one of the, our local fine universities here. And his professor uh, knew about Bethesda and knew about our music thing here. And because this young man, though he's uh, well on his way to uh, performance life in an orchestra somewhere, he has felt the call of God on his life for ministry, and he really believes God had called him to be a pastor. So he was referred to come to, to talk to us. And so why do I tell you that? I tell you that because it was so wonderfully refreshing to hear a young man, I'm guessing maybe 19 years old, um, to sit in my office and tell me about an incredible experience with the Lord Jesus that had absolutely changed his life. He, all of the things you ever want to hope to hear about someone's experience with Christ literally just came gushing out of this very talented and highly intelligent young man. And I just, I tell you what, it just reminded me that Jesus is still saving. He's still, he's still doing all the things he promised he would do. And so it was, it was a joy. So, you know, all in all, just to have encountered so many young people who are who are passionate about Jesus. When I was talking to our students on Thursday, my subject was to talk about the church. And um, I really had a goal in mind. I had known for months I wanted to talk about the church. I want our church to know, our students to know the value of the church of the Lord Jesus. You and I know what the statistics look like for what happens when students leave high school and go off to college and what can happen. We, we were all watching that happen. So I just said before our students leave this school, I want to be sure somebody has a chance at saying, but here is the value of the church. And I just want to tell you, I thought I was going to walk in and tell them some things they didn't know. So many of them knew, had such great knowledge and understanding already. But not only that, but I got to witness and see firsthand that we have so many students who really have value for the church of the Lord Jesus. And they're not particularly interested in smoke and lights. They're not particularly interested in entertainment value in a church. They want authenticity. They want the real deal. And I was very, very, very encouraged by that. And so my teaching to the Bible classes was, was about the church. And I, I, I asked them questions like this. I said, so... 
so what do you expect of your church? And they gave me answers, and they were very, very interesting. And then I asked him, what should your church expect of you? And we talked about all that. And then I got really, really brave. It, it wasn't on my plan to ask them this, but it just sort of came out. I said, so what should you expect of your pastor? I thought, let's get brave and see what happens here. And here was the encouraging thing about that. Oh, by the way, um, in one of the classes, when I said, what should you expect of your church? They just kind of looked at me for a minute, and then finally one kid says, I expect him to have a bathroom. <laughs> I said, I'll be sure we've got that covered, okay? And uh, so that, we got off to a roaring start with that class. And then, uh, but so what do you expect of your pastor? And in every class, and there were six of them that day, the answer came back from at least one or two of the students that was something that sounded like this. And these are, these are young people, or kids, many of them, you know, they're young. But they came back and they said, I expect the pastor to preach the truth of the Word of God and to not compromise. <laughs> and it was expressed in a variety of ways. That's essentially what was being said. But I'm going to tell you, this pastor's heart was warmed by seeing a generation that's coming up behind us, folks, who want the truth of the Word of God, and so it gave, me, it gave me great, great hope. What I saw again this week is that within our, our school, we certainly have students who love the Lord and they love to exalt Christ. Do we have also students who are doubters? Yes, we, we have that in our school. We have students with all kinds of questions about their faith? Yes, but that happens in this room this morning as well. We have all of that. But there is a core, I'm going to use a, a Bible word, there is a remnant of solid, strong believers who are ready to win their world for Christ. And it was, it was exciting to see how they wanted to exalt the Lord Jesus. And that's what I want to do here for the next few minutes this morning, is exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Is anybody with me today that we can do that? Because there's no greater thing that we can do. There is, there's no greater privilege for the believer. There is no finer point of commonality for us than to lift up the magnificent name of Jesus. It's true we may disagree on some of the lesser points and we may have some differing theological positions and that's okay. But anyone in the room today who has been born again by the Spirit of God, washed in His blood, cleansed from their sin, and grateful for the cross will have no, should have no difficulty in joining me in saying that Jesus Christ is Lord and we declare it to the glory of the Father. Are you with me today on that? And that He's the very center of our lives and He is the reason for our existence and that he can show up anywhere, anytime, and do whatever he wants to do. In fact, he might just show up here in this room today as Savior. He might just show up as healer, as, as baptizer, and who knows, this could be the day he shows up as our coming King. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Hallelujah. And I do know that God inhabits the praises of his people, and if we'll be faithful to lift him up, he will draw all men unto himself. And so I'm going to share with you today a very simple gospel message. I had my moments of thinking, is that what I should share at Bethesda on Sunday morning? But it just kept coming to my heart. And so let me frame it this way. If you are here today and, and you, are, you are not a believer or you are a person with great questions about faith 
and about God and about the Lord Jesus Christ, I just ask you to listen carefully to me for, for a few minutes. And if you are a believer, you may find yourself wondering why I'm, I'm giving this message to a church congregation because it's going to be a lot of things that you already know. But I'm going to ask a favor of you, those of you who are believers in the room today, I'm going to ask that you pray with me as I speak that I would present Christ well because that's my purpose and intention this morning is to present Jesus well in a way that truly honors his name. But I'm going to ask something else. I'm going to encourage believers here today to listen to this message in search of potential tools for you to use in your personal evangelism. We are now well on our way to in 2016, and I'm sure all of us could step up our efforts in personal evangelism. Now, I'm very aware of the things that can stand in our way, like being tolerant of the position of other people. I'll be glad when we get over the whole tolerant issue in this country someday. Trying to be, it's another thing that stands in our way, is trying to be politically correct. That's becoming a, a, another hindrance and a block for us. Being afraid of awkward moments, many people are afraid of that or they're afraid of being asked questions for which you may not have the answer. But I want to I show you something that had impact on me and I actually didn't see it till this morning. It's a YouTube clip that somebody, a fellow pastor sent to me. You may have seen it. These things float around. They get all kinds of exposure. So you may have already seen it. But it, it, it hits me with profound impact on the importance and the value of those of us who have been washed in the blood of Jesus, been regenerated, been born again by the Spirit of God, our obligation and responsibility to share our faith with other people. And so it's a man by the name of Penn Gillette, I believe is his name, who is part of a comedy and magic team. Some of you may know who they are. I am not extremely familiar with them. Uh, but he is a celebrity who is a well-proclaimed atheist. Um, you'll get that when I show you. I've tried to edit down, just make it just a couple of minutes. You can tell he's not spent a lot of time in the Bible by a couple of things that he says, okay? So that's true. And I, here's, here's what he's saying. It looks like he's just a, you know, it's just a selfie sort of a video that he's made because somebody has come to him and made an effort to present him the gospel. And at least they are, they've given him a Bible. Uh, he said it's the New Testament. I think it had the Psalms of the New Testament was the, way he, was the way he says it. So that's okay. That's fine. But he makes a statement in here that ought to be sobering and convicting to all of us. Now, I'm not saying that at the end of this he gets wonderfully saved and we all rejoice. And No, that's not, that's not the story. But this is a man who is an atheist, and I think it's profound. It should have profound impact all, on all of us. Let's show it. Can we please do it right now? Someone's given him this. We would use evangelizing.
Hello. Wow. Had you ever thought of it that way? How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them that unless they find Jesus, they're going to die and go to hell and spend eternity in hell? Now, I understand that's not a popular subject, but I think that's a profound statement to us today. So, Lord, I'm asking your grace to be upon us as I'm asking the Holy Spirit to settle in this room today. Lord, more than anything, we recognize that the most important thing we have to do today here is to present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So come amongst us today, Lord. Have your way amongst us today. I'm asking for you to convict hearts today in this room, Lord Jesus. I'm asking that you'll draw us closer to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone said amen. Take your, take your Bible and meet me at the Gospel of John, please. I want us to see the picture of when Jesus comes on the scene. And John is trying to say about Jesus, let me describe to you who he is. And in letting us know who Christ is, John repeats a phrase here that, to which we should give heed. Here is when John is for the first time announcing Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 15. He says, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Go down to verse 29 of the same chapter. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who's far greater than I am. And he says it again. For he existed long before me. Now we need to understand why that's a big deal. Why that's a significant statement. That's because John is the older cousin to Jesus. And according to the records, the biblical records, John is six months older than Jesus. And Yet John is saying that his cousin, who's six months, young, six months young, younger, existed before him. So either John is crazy or he's trying to tell us something of great significance. When John says twice that Christ existed long before himself, he's saying something quite epic to us that we need to understand. So what, what was John saying about the person of Jesus? Essentially this. That if you don't ascribe to who Christ is, then what Jesus says and does has no power to it. And just as 
the young man whose testimony I, I heard this week, I told you about on Wednesday, I, I heard his testimony. He had to grapple with the question, and he told me this. He had to wrestle with this question. What then will I do with Christ? There comes a point in time in everyone's life when you have to answer that question. We must understand who he is is what gives power to his death and resurrection. Who he is is what gives power to what he says. In fact, look at what John writes in the very first part of his gospel, John 1.1. 1, 1. You, you know this. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John is doing from the very start here is putting Jesus in a very unique category as the only person who ever lived before he was born. So let me make it even more clear. John is saying, by all of the references I've just given you, John is saying in the first of his gospel that Jesus existed even before the beginning of Genesis, which says that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And John is saying Jesus existed even before that. He's saying that Jesus was alive before the creation of the world as we know it because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. John was telling us that you cannot separate who he is from what he has done. That's why in most trials people are tried for what they have done, but not Jesus. Jesus was tried for who he is and who he said he was. Which means this, that if you're wanting to know what God is like, it is found very simply at looking at the person of Jesus Christ. Church, will you agree with me this morning? Literally, to encounter Jesus is to encounter God. Which is why, Bethesda, it is very critical that we not lift up churches and denominations, but that we ever and always remain focused on lifting up the person of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is the Savior. He is the King. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, who said this, the great danger confronting all of us in this present time is to keep talking about the church instead of talking about Jesus. And this came from the pastor of a church. In fact, he pastored Westminster Chapel in London, the same church pastored by our dear friend R.T. Kendall, who's spoken here a couple of times. But here's the fact of the matter. The church, as significant as it is, as wonderful as it is, and yes, that is my true position, as important and valuable as, as it is, the church cannot change you. The church cannot save you. Bethesda Church did not die for you. There is one person who died for you to forgive you of your sins, and his name is Jesus. Christianity has never been about initially encountering the right words or doctrine. It is all about encountering the right person. And when you find the right person, the words and doctrine come later because Jesus is the most reliable source of information that we have about God. Let me tell you what is said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. 
Christ Jesus is the God-given image. And when you face Jesus, you have two options. You either say, this is God in the flesh. Or you have to go up, go on and make up your own image of God. God has taken the initiative to reveal himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus tells us the truth about God. Jesus is God's authorized biography. If you want to know who God is, get to know Jesus. Because if you mess up who Jesus is, and you also have messed up in your mind who God is. It was C.S. Lewis who said it this way. I am trying here to prevent anyone, he said, saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said this sort of thing about Jesus, that said Jesus would not be a great moral teacher, he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, C.S. Lewis says. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his simply being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let me say it clearly this morning. Jesus is God in the flesh, and that is who he is. Let me go further with this thought. When you read the New Testament references and you come upon what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it says this, and you know this verse, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul is simply, now follow me here, my, this thinking, Paul is simply quoting what the prophet Joel in the Old Testament had said about God himself using the exact same words. I'm trying to point out the fact that we have a New Testament passage from Paul in Romans that echoes that which was said in the Old Testament, in Joel chapter 2. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Joel says, will be saved. So you have everything from Joel chapter 2 to Romans 10 using interchangeably the very words that would be spoken about God the Father. And they are the same words spoken about Jesus Christ. Even Philippians chapter 2, another passage that is well known to us, though he was God. Speaking of Jesus, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him, other versions say exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that New Testament scripture about Christ 
hear me, listen, is taken from an Old Testament passage of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45 of Isaiah, verse 23, where God says, I have sworn by my own name. I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. And then he says this, every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. So we see plenty of verses about God and about Christ that are used interchangeably. What is being shown to us is very simply that it takes God to save us, not just a teacher, not just a man. It takes God, which is why it's so important to understand that God comes into our human history to change it. Can the church say hallelujah today? It was just about three years ago that a young man by the name of Hayden Carlo, a resident in our own area of Plano, Texas, made national news for getting a ticket. And one of our fine Texas police officers pulls over this young man who is the father of two small children because this officer had seen that his registration sticker had expired. So the police lights go on, the siren sounds, scares the young guy to death, and he gets pulled over. The officer gets out of his car and he approaches Hayden, and Hayden with his wife and two small children had come upon hard times. You see, he was an employee at a hardware store and just did not make enough money to make ends meet. He barely had enough money, he tells the officer, to pay the rent on their small apartment and get a little bit of food. And so with honesty and vulnerability, he simply told the officer, Sir, I, I've just hit bad luck. And I, Sir, I, I, I had a choice. I had $100 left to my name and I could either feed my family or pay for the registration on my vehicle. Officer, I am guilty. I don't have my registration. I didn't renew it. I bought food for my family instead. The officer took Hayden's license and walked back to his squad car, and he wrote out the, cit the citation for Hayden Carlo. So why did Hayden get a ticket? Because he had broken the law, and the price had to be paid for breaking the law. We could easily be upset with that officer saying, well, so, so where's the heart? Why can't those officers be more compassionate? But you read it and you go, but the law was broken and the price had to be paid for the breaking of the law. Well, but the cop should have shown mercy. Romans 3.23 makes it clear to all of us, ladies and gentlemen, that all of us have sinned and someone has to pay for that sin. Somebody does. Hear me clearly. I don't care what you think you have gotten by with in life. Sin does not go unpunished. It does not. And just like me, you are responsible for dealing with the sin issue of your life. But the issue that you and I that I have is that you and I have no way to fix it unless God fixes it himself. Well, it seemed kind of crazy. Why would Hayden Carlo get it on national news simply for getting pulled over by a cop and getting a, a, a ticket for failing to renew his car registration until you understand the rest of the story? The news report went on to say that when Hayden got the ticket from the officer, it was rolled up. And when he, when he, Hayden, unrolled it, 
he found a $100 bill with the ticket, which was the money needed to pay for the citation he received for having broken the law. The issue was he was guilty. The issue was the officer had a responsibility and an obligation to uphold the law. But no one ever said that that officer couldn't help that man fix the situation when it wasn't in Hayden's power to do it. And here's what is amazing. Hayden broke down and cried in the car, as you can imagine. Because if there's a bill to pay, and you can start making all the promises that you want. But guess what? Promises don't work when it's time to pay a bill. They never, promises don't fix anything. You can't fix anything with promises. How many of you have ever had a credit card? Raise your hand. You know where this is going. How many have ever run that credit card up? Probably a little more than you should have. Raise your hand. Oh, come on. So I have a question for you. How did it work for you when you called up Visa or MasterCard or American Express and cried to them that you promised never to do it again? How'd that work for you? If you could just forgive me this one time. How many of you got an operator who was touched by your desperation? Let me see your hand. And they said, oh, honey, you are so sincere. Of course, $10,000, I'll wipe it off your bill right now. And you say, oh, I promise I will never again buy another pair of shoes. I promise. And all the husbands of the church said, amen. And American Express says, oh, dear, and you're so emotional. Of course we forgive you. Just promise never to do it again. Who in here knows promises don't work? We need someone to pay the bill. American Express, Visa, doesn't care how many tears you cry. They don't care how many promises you make. American Express says, send me the payment. So somebody has to pay for the sin issue in your life and mine. And I'm here to say, only God can pay for the sin issue in your life and mine. It's quite simple, ladies and gentlemen. We are guilty. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are guilty. Someone has to pay. And guess what? 2,000 years ago, God rolled up in human flesh his own son, Jesus Christ, and said, here's the bill, but I've sent you the way to get out of this debt, and his name is Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, because of who he is and who that was, dying on the cross, God was telling us something monumental. If he's just a good man, if he's just a moral teacher, then just an amazing guy died. But that's not what happened. Think of this for a second. The God who created the universe, who would give his only son to die for us, was announcing to you and to me in the most profound way possible that God loves us. God loves you. We sang about it this morning. It is amazing to me to, many, to meet as many people as I do who simply struggle with believing that God loves them. God was profoundly interested in saying to you, you mean something to me that I would send my son rolled up in human flesh and the cross is the greatest declaration of my love. 
think of this. Why would, why would God have to reveal his I love you to you in such a strange way? Why couldn't God just come down and literally put cloud letters in the sky and say, I love you, sincerely, God? Why couldn't he have done that? Why couldn't he just send a message? Why couldn't he have just said it through the prophets of the Old Testament? Why couldn't he just have told us through any other way? Why would it have to be the cross to give us this incredible declaration of his love? I think and I believe that the cross represents beyond any shadow of a doubt, ladies and gentlemen, the declaration that God went to the maximum to say, I love you so much that I would even die for you because I want to leave absolutely no question about it. So I have to ask you, sir, have you considered the cross? I ask you, ma'am, have you really thought about the implications of the cross for your life? The reason he died on the cross is literally that the cross becomes this incredible revelation of saying to you, I love you and nothing could hold me back. It's God taking it to the nth degree. The death of Jesus tells mankind throughout human history of the amazing love of God and that he would go to any length to tell you how much he loves you. So if you're sitting in this place today, or if you're listening on the webcast and you're wondering if God loves you, I'm here to announce boldly today with a thousand exclamation points, yes, he loves you. And the cross, if it says anything, it tells you that God loves you. He came and died for you when you didn't even ask for him to come. Jesus came for you. And God was saying, let's have absolutely no misunderstanding. I'm going to die for you because I, I love you that much. And that's why Christians don't just believe. Some people say, well, just believe. Believe in what? We believe in someone. We believe in Jesus. So here's, here's, here's what faith is. Faith is a reaction to that revelation. What is faith? Faith is an action word. Well, I have faith. Great, let's see the action. Faith is an action word. It's a reaction to you accepting and believing that God loves you and that God, you understand that God came to pay the price for you. Faith is a reaction to this truth. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay and I needed someone to wash my sins away. But it is not just, oh, I believe, you know, there's songs, there's songs that are in the, considered in the, in the sacred literature. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe for every drop of rain that falls. Lovely song, lovely melody, pretty words, but it says nothing. I, you believe in what? You must believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins to be forgiven. Faith is a joyful reaction to this discovery that God is real and that his love for you is real. So so real that he would die for you. One of the most amazing verses in all of the New Testament is found in Romans chapter 4. And it says this, But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. This is incredible. The person who gets it the person who understands this is the man or woman who has discovered that they cannot pay the bill for their sin, even with the best of their efforts. And not everyone understands that, ladies and gentlemen. 
The former mayor of New York City, Mr. Michael Bloomberg, was speaking to the New York Times and reminding New Yorkers of his accomplishments during his term of office as mayor of their city. And here's what he actually said. He actually said this. I can substantiate it. Based upon my crusades, he said, for gun control, smoking bans, and obesity awareness, I'm telling you that if there is a God, I wouldn't even have to be interviewed for heaven. I go straight in because I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close simply because of what I've done for New York City. I'm glad I wasn't standing next to the man when he said it. And you want to say to him, Mr. Bloomberg, maybe you should stick to doing mayor stuff and not try to mess with eternity stuff because you don't know a thing about it. What Mr. Bloomberg said is totally, completely contra contradictory to what Paul just told us in Romans chapter 4. Because what the Bible says is clear. Not because of their work, but because of their faith in the God who forgives sins is one counted righteous. The faith of that person, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl, who immediately understands it is not based upon anything that they have done, but simply faith in the Lord Jesus Christ the faith of that person is immediately counted as, or they are immediately credited as righteous. So to all the people who have been deceived into thinking that your good works, as wonderful a person as you are, as nice as you are, as all of the efforts that you make, humanitarian effort, efforts that you go to, and, or making yourself better, or trying harder to think that that is going to get you into heaven, let me be sure you know the truth. It's the person who says, Jesus, I can't fix this sin issue. I cannot pay the debt, but I accept the reality that you have paid the price for me. That person is immediately marked as righteous. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The temptation of our day and generation is this. Our temptation is to try to look good, particularly in Texas, without being good. We try to look good on the outside without being good on the inside. Let me make this clear. You can fix whatever you want to fix on the outside. Get your Botox, get your all the makeup, get everything done, go have all the right surgeries, but it does not fix the sin issue in your life. And it certainly doesn't resolve the emptiness that is within. That is the point that I was so struck by, by the young music performance major that was in my office on Wednesday. He was so broken when he said, Pastor Dan, I could not live any longer with this incredible sense of emptiness inside. I couldn't find who I was. I couldn't find anything. And he said, but you know what? Tears ran down his cheeks. When I understood the meaning of the cross, can I also tell you this is a pastor's son? When I understood truly the meaning of the cross, when I totally got it, when I had to be honest about this 
emptiness that's within, that's within me. I accepted Jesus as the center of my life. Pastor Dan, he filled everything within me. And he put a life within me that I never even dreamed I could have. This young man said, my pastor's son told me that church or churches, his dad had pastored. He said, I got to be honest with you. I don't believe my dad has ever been saved. I don't believe my dad has ever had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. At least not like what I've just experienced a few months ago. He said, how, how is that possible? I said, well, it's very simple. I said, there are plenty of people who are fascinated with the academics of theology. Very brilliant thinkers. They love to talk. They love to explore ideas. They can go down this trail and that trail. They're fascinated, truly fascinated by theology. But they can be fascinated by theology and never have had a life-changing regeneration experience in the Lord Jesus and never encountered him. I'm telling you the truth today, church. One of the things I tried to communicate to our students this week was, what is the difference? In fact, I put this on. I was asked to submit some questions. Mr. Chadwick asked me to submit some questions for their discussion or writing or whatever they're going to do with them. That's up to him. And one of the questions I, I said they should consider this. What is the difference in Christian culturalism and true spiritual regeneration? Use that as an essay question and let me know. Because there are people abounding everywhere, ladies and gentlemen, who have an assent to Christian culturalism. They understand the basics of Christianity. They understand certain things and they can, well, yeah, I, I accept that's probably true and that's probably true. I know Bible verses. I know the Bible stories. I know this. I was even raised in church. I know all this. They have an assent to and maybe even a certain value for Christian culturalism. But have never, ever had a life-changing experience with Jesus where that emptiness that was within them could only be filled by him. I'm here this morning to say Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and he's the only way to get to God. Amen. So how does it work? Let me tell you. Faith is a response. Faith is an action word. Faith always demands action. And I have run across this. I'm sure you have too. I'm going to give you the ABCs. Very, very simple. A. So, Pastor Dan, how does this happen? How, how, do I, how do I have what you're talking about? A. Admit that there is a sin issue in your life that needs to be resolved. Can I just tell you? When you admit that there's a sin issue in your life that needs to be resolved, you are no different than the rest of us in this room. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Me and everyone else in this room. And the day you're willing to admit there's a sin issue in my life that needs to be resolved. And you admit that your sin has separated you from a holy God. 
Sin cannot go unpunished. Not in the sight of a holy God. You cannot have a holy God and have sin existing. Your sin has separated you from a holy God. You may have put cosmetics on it any way you wanted. You may have tried to smooth it over any way you wanted. You may have tried to hide it. You may have thought you've gotten away with all kinds of things. But at the root of it all is a sin issue. You admit there's a sin issue. You admit that it has separated you from a holy God. You admit that there is a God who loves you desperately, who longs to be with you and longs to live inside of you and to fill the void of emptiness that you're trying to currently fill with everything else. A, admit. B, believe. Believe the gospel message that I've given you today and simply call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sin. All you have to do is acknowledge that God loves you and desires to forgive you and he wants to be in close relationship with you. A, admit. B, believe. And C, confess. This process I'm giving you is the biblical way to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess. What does that mean? It means you're going to have to open your mouth and you're going to have to speak out words that say, I confess Christ Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and I'm handing my life this day over to Him to rule and to reign. A, admit. B, believe. C, confess. For dear friend, you cannot earn your salvation. You cannot get good enough. You come to Christ just as you are, like the rest of us have, just as we are, and accept Him as Lord. One final story that I pray will make this point crystal clear as the musicians come, and everyone remain right where you are, please. There is a book called Medal of Honor. As you know, that is the ultimate military award that you can receive from the President of the United States as an act of courage. The story from the book that I'm referencing is amazing. It's about a guy named Sammy L. Davis, not the singer, Sammy L. Davis. This guy graduated in 1965. He signed up for the military. He went through basic training and he was shipped off to Vietnam. And at his toughest moment, he lands on November 18, 1967, and they, they sent Samuel L. Davis and his unit with 11 cannons and 42 men into a place where there were 1,500 Viet Cong. Only a river separated the Viet Cong from the fire support base. The comments I'm about to give you come straight, by, straight from President Lyndon B. Johnson. Detecting a nearby enemy position, Sergeant Davis, at that time, Private First Class, Sergeant Davis seized a machine gun and provided covering fire for his gun crew as they attempted to bring direct artillery fire on the enemy. But despite his efforts, an enemy recoilless rifle round scored a direct hit upon the ar artillery piece. The resultant blast hurled the gun crew from their weapon and blew Sergeant Davis into a foxhole. He struggled to his feet and returned to the howitzer, which was burning furiously. Ignoring repeated warnings to seek cover, Sergeant Davis rammed a shell into the gun, disregarding a withering hail of enemy fire directed against his position. He aimed and fired the howitzer, which rolled backwards, knocking Sergeant Davis violently to the ground. Undaunted, he returned to the weapon to fire again when an enemy mortar round exploded within 20 meters of his position, injuring him painfully. 
Nevertheless, Sergeant Davis loaded the artillery piece and aimed and fired. Again, he was knocked down by the recoil. In complete disregard for his safety, Sergeant Davis loaded and fired three more shells into the enemy. Again, disregarding his extensive injuries and disregarding his inability to swim, Sergeant Davis picked up an air mattress and struck out across the deep river to rescue three wounded comrades on the far side. Upon reaching the three wounded men, he stood upright and fired into the dense vegetation to prevent the Viet Cong from advancing. While the most seriously wounded soldier was helped across the river, Sergeant Davis protected the two remaining casualties until he could pull them across the river to the fire support base. Though suffering from painful wounds, he refused medical attention, joining another howitzer crew which fired at the large Viet Cong force until it broke contact and fled. Why am I telling you this story? Because it showed up again decades later in the movie Forrest Gump. When Forrest Gump was meeting the president, Lyndon B. Johnson, they simply superimposed the head of Tom Hanks on top of the body of Sammy L. Davis, who was actually receiving the, the, the award, the Medal of Honor, from President Lyndon B. Johnson. And that year, Forrest Gump takes the Oscar. Listen to me, church. Sammy L. Davis did all the work. They put Tom Hanks' face on the body. Tom Hanks gets the award. Tom Hanks gets all the praise. And Sammy Davis did all the work. There is a clear parallel here. Jesus left the splendor of heaven, came through time and space, reduced himself until ultimately he died on the cross for you. And on the day you stand before the sovereign God, it's going to go like this. God will take the head of Jesus and place it on you and say to you, welcome, you are now in the body of Christ. He did all the work. You get the reward which is eternal life in heaven, worshiping around the throne of God. He did the work for you today. So why wouldn't you surrender to him? Sir, ma'am, what is faith? It is your reaction to believing that Christ did it all for you. Bow your heads in prayer with me.